Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations and debates hosted by the center in person and online. I'm Tanea Tauber, the Senior Director of Town Hall Programs. Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America has been called by Harvey Mansfield the, quote, best book ever written on democracy and the best book ever written on America. What can a 200-year-old book teach us about democracy in America today? Scholars Jeremy Jennings, author of Travels with Tocqueville Beyond America, Olivier Zuntz, author of The Man Who Understood Democracy, The Life of Alexis de Tocqueville, and Catherine Zuckert of the University of Notre Dame, discuss Tocqueville's masterpiece and its lessons for modern Americans. Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, moderates. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started. Hello, friends. Welcome to the National Constitution Center and to today's convening of America's Town Hall. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, the president and CEO of this wonderful institution. Welcome, uh, Jeremy Jennings, Catherine Zuckert, and Olivier Zunz. Olivier, if I may, I'll start with you. You describe so much of Tocqueville's thought in your compelling new biography, The Man Who Understood Democracy, including his belief that liberty and equality could reinforce each other. But you also discuss uh, the influence of his studies of the American Constitution on his thought, which eventually inspired him to propose a bicameral legislative system for France. Tell us about what Tocqueville's conversations with legislators like John Spencer and Chancellor Kent and other figures taught him about the U.S. Constitution and and how that influenced his thought. Well, thank you for inviting me to this uh, uh, conversation here. Um, I'm delighted to be here. So one of the, for many years, I I, uh, uh, taught a a Tocqueville seminar, reading reading Tocqueville with a group of undergraduates at, at UVA. And one of the things that always surprised them and understandably so, is how could a young man who was just only a couple of years older than they were, uh, he was only 25 when he came to to this country, uh, could write such a book. And uh, and so many years later, we're still reading it and learning from it. Moreover, Tocqueville knew absolutely pretty much close to zero about this country before he came. He learned English during the sea voyage. Uh, um, he had very little understanding of it, but he had this intuition that um, if he w- was going to live in a democracy, he got to see one. And he had got another piece of intuition, which I think was important. I think Jeremy will especially uh, appreciate this being a, uh, Listening to us from England is that Tocqueville bypassed England altogether. He wanted to; he didn't, he didn't want just to to see a constitutional monarchy. He, he wanted to see a republic. He wanted to see um, uh, so unlike uh, so. So there he are. But but he arrived here, and and he learned on the on the go. He learned on the way, and and he spent several weeks here even before thinking about the constitution. And it's only when he was in upstate New York, uh, uh, traveling along the uh, uh, Erie Canal, going down the Mohawk Valley, that he met John Spencer, who was uh, a New York State lawyer, who uh, would end up become, for a short time, Treasury Secretary in the Tyler administration. Uh, but then was, had, had written the, rewritten the New York Constitution, helped part, part of it, and introduced him to the U.S. Constitution. So, so John Spencer was a very important informant. Tocqueville talked to about 200 uh, Americans. And, and I think Spencer being the I said, well, look, young man, you really need to understand something about the Constitution if you want to understand this country. And... Uh, uh, was really, uh, really critical. So, uh, uh, a couple of things. Uh, Tocqueville really was impressed with this idea that the, that the Constitution made it possible for people to live at the same time in a small country and a big country. That, that somehow, uh, 
there were provisions where one could retain a lot of local autonomy, uh, a sense of, of uh, direct political action, and yet uh, maintain a republican system throughout a vast and expanding territory. So that is a point that I thought was critical to him because he came, if he had any idea at all, with this idea from Montesquieu and others that you could have a, a republican government only in small countries. Uh, and therefore, no, it could also exist in big one. So that was, um, uh, I think, the Madisonian touch that he, he really picked up on. He also was completely surprised by the idea that it was impossible for him, coming from France, to conceive that a court could invalidate a law. Uh, that, that was not something that, that he had ever, ever thought, thought about. And yes, as you pointed out, Jeff, uh, he was extremely uh, impressed with the notion of bicameralism, of two two chambers. Uh, uh, and and later on, Tocqueville, who, yes, wanted to be a, an intellectual and a writer, but he wanted even more to be a politician. Uh, after many years in the chamber, uh, he had his... Uh, I hesitated to say his name, the son, because it was not very successful, but he was briefly foreign minister of the Second Republic in 1849, after the 1848 revolution. And, uh, and he also, in 1849, uh, was part of the Constitutional Committee. Uh, and he was still very much, uh, uh, in conversation with John Spencer and with other American informants. And he tried very hard to, to implement bicameralism in the, uh, uh, French constitution of the Second Republic, and he failed. So interesting to learn about his Madisonian conclusions about federalism and his unsuccessful efforts to implement bicameralism. And you so vividly show how his own political career was was full of uh, challenges to implement his his theories in practice. Well, let's talk now about what Tocqueville learned from his travels abroad, which is a topic that you talk about so powerfully, Jeremy Jennings, in your new book, Travels with Tocqueville Beyond America. You take us with Tocqueville to Canada, to Germany, to Italy, to Algeria. Um, He learned many things, but uh, give our audience a sense of whether his travels, which taught him more about the dangers of administrative despotism in in Italy and Germany, for example, did did they reinforce the lessons that he had put forth in democracy in America, or did they challenge them? Well, thank you very much for inviting me, and it's it's, it's a pleasure to to be with you. Um, one of the things, I mean, I, I, following on from what Olivier Zanz has just said, one of the important points that Olivier makes in his book. Um, is that the way Tocqueville thought was, in his phrase, intrinsically comparative, and that is that is true. And uh, and I think so. Wherever so he, so Tocqueville comes to America, as, as has been pointed out, as a very very young man. He writes this classic book as a very young man, but then he continues to travel, and it's quite clear that and he goes to lots of. You didn't mention he comes to England. He went to Ireland as well, and. I think it's true to say wherever he went, America stayed with him in his head, really. And it was always a point of reference. You know, when they go to England, they say, well, um, his traveling friend Beaumont sort of says, well, where's America in all of this? What's the link with America in all of this? Um, and, and and so on. So I think he is, it's not It's not the only thing he's doing. Obviously, he's doing lots of other things. Um, but I, I think his travels, in a way, is always testing the basic hypotheses that he developed in America, and that what he saw in America, and in particular that hypothesis, that crucial hypothesis, that in the sense the future was democracy, and, and you know that that is, that is where we're going to go. So everything was sort of seen in that light, and that's one of the things that it's really fascinating about, especially his trips. Trips he made three trips to England, his trips to England, and his trip to Ireland, but also the trip to Germany, because in a way. Those, what he sees there is, is quite a challenge to 
to, to what, he, what he'd seen in America and what he thought the course of history would be. The English case is fascinating because, of course, here was a country where, which was holding seemingly holding democracy at bay, which was still keeping a monarchy and an aristocracy um, and so on. Ireland was interesting because here was a country which was just, was driven by a democratic spirit and so on and so forth. And to what extent would that, and he believed it would, and Beaumont agreed with him, ultimately, to what extent would that ultimately challenge English aristocracy? A similar, a similar thing in Germany, that Germany somehow, why, why had Germany managed to avoid, one of the other questions obviously in, in this area is, why did other countries manage to avoid the catastrophe that became French history? That's another question which is very uh, uppermost in his mind. And that's one reason he goes to Germany. He says, he says, well, obviously, if you, you know, no one can understand the French Revolution by only understanding France. So all the time he's, 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 he's making these comparisons wherever he goes. Likewise with Algeria, he goes to Algeria and says, well, this reminds me of Cincinnati and all of these sorts of things. So he's always there. And although Tocqueville doesn't come back to America, it never leaves him. And that's why writers, we know that's something I worked on some years ago, um, right up, right up to his death, you know, he's following developments in America. And when friends come back from America, he sees them. Tell me what you saw. Has this changed? What about this? What about that? And so on. American friends in, 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 in American visitors to Paris, he would see him, and, and so on and so forth. So America always remains remains with him. But I think Olivier is right to talk about those constitutional debates um, and, and, and focus attention on those because here was Tocqueville's opportunity. To actually install something equivalent to to the um, American Constitution in France, and he fails. And actually, the bits where he succeeded turned out to be politically uh, failures uh, as as well. Um, but the last piece, I, I think I'm writing this. The last piece that Tocqueville actually published uh, was on the theme of judicial review, something of course completely alien to the French tradition. So that's the last. The last. That's the last thing he published. So these American issues remain with him wherever he went, and right the way through until the end. So interesting and highlighting as you do why France uh, descended into liberalism and, and America didn't uh, is, is so powerful. And, and noting those two differences as, as you do, separation of powers and, and judicial review introduces the question of to what degree constitutionalism may uh, protect liberty. Uh, Catherine Zucker, you discuss another central protection for liberty properly understood, and that is religion. And Tocqueville famously said that liberty didn't consist in unregulated license, but in self-control, self-mastery, and that the spirit of religion was a great uh, incentive in that regard. Tell us more about his complicated views about the spirit of religion, which he, where he balanced his Catholicism with, a, with an ecumenicalism, and uh, to what degree his observations about religion and uh, liberty are still relevant. Um, thank you. I, I will try. Um, I think it might be useful to begin with the observation that um, Tocqueville's use of the word democracy, you know, or in French, isn't quite the same as we ordinarily use. Um, so by democracy, he meant an egalitarian social state, um, which is one that has no aristocracy, um, no one born into um, a class or a station. And he thought that the um, progress of history was moving away from governments instituted by force in which some people had a hereditary right to rule and to have all the wealth to a more egalitarian, not perfectly egalitarian, but in this respect, more egalitarian situation. Um, what he then saw, um, maybe from his worries about France, was that just having people equal doesn't necessarily make them politically free. So what Tocqueville was most concerned about in coming to the United States was learning how this equality could not lead to a all-powerful centralized government, but instead would lead to liberty among the public. And one part of that was the decentralized constitution, in this case, less bicameralism and more federal. Um, something's national, something's state, and most important from Tocqueville's point of view, something's local. Um, but then when he, so for 
Tocqueville, what was really important about the development of the United States was its origin in the Puritans, uh, because he saw that the Puritans combined what we would think would be <laughs> incompatible, that is this really strict moral legislation with democratic institutions, town meetings and uh, you know, majority consent to law. Uh, with the settlement and after the revolution in the United States, the morals couldn't be imposed by law, nor does he think that they should be. Um, those were taken straight out of the Bible, and he thought they were suitable only for primitive people. Um, but the religious or the strict morals in the United States remained. And in fact, he thought that was so important that at a certain point, he says, the first institution, um, political institution is in the United States is religion. So how could that be? Uh, it's a kind of paradoxical statement because his argument is the reason why religion could be so powerful in the United States was it was not state imposed. Once you have an equal and democratic people, they want to think for themselves and so they don't want to be told what to think. Religion retained its influence in the United States because there weren't public officials telling people what to believe. Um, and his argument was that that was the only way in which religion could maintain influence in a democracy. Um, so, well, how, how did that work? Um, what he saw or thought he saw it in France was when state officials dictate to people what they should believe or what churches they should go to, the Catholic church in this case, um, um, what ceremony should be, people resist. That's not free. Um, so in the United States, where people were allowed to uh, worship as they pleased, they retained the general moral principles, largely of Protestant um, Christianity, but um, also that were compatible with Catholicism. And his, his observations after that were, or his predictions really in volume two of uh, Democracy in America was that religions would remain powerful in um, the modern world if and only if they remained out non-state religions, non-enforced. Uh, moreover, he thought, yes, the, the religions um, help having strict morals, and he associated those actually primarily with um, marriage and family life. Um, and so, <laughs> so it's got, got a lot of contemporary relevance, although things have changed massively. Um, but he didn't think that a new religion could be introduced he didn't think that um, any religion would be successfully state-supported or state-imposed. Um, he didn't think any religion that had um, a very fancy ritual would last in the United States. He thought things would become more informal. So I think he wouldn't have been surprised by the time in which um, in Catholic churches, um, this was in the 1960s, they started um you know, singing folk songs. Um, so there would be a great reduction. You don't have the Latin mass anymore. Um, so not rituals, the emergence of, you know, community churches, non-denominational, just very loose beliefs in a God, a promise of an afterlife, um, which he thought um, rise out of natural human desires. So if you don't block those desires, they will remain. Um, not all of his predictions, I think, have become true. It would be hard to look at the Middle East now and say religion isn't powerful in politics, but um, at least I hope that's where we could begin. Very well. Thank you so much for, for summarizing so, so beautifully Tocqueville's belief that uh, religion, the spirit of religion, could promote that sort of self-control and self-mastery. And for raising the question about whether or not his... Uh, predictions have been vindicated. So um, in addition to religion, Tocqueville also said that the doctrine of self-interest properly understood would promote this kind of self-control. And he said, philosophers teaching this doctrine tell men that to be happy in this life, they must keep close watch upon their passions. 
and keep control over all their excesses. They must control themselves in order to promote their own interests. Uh, the question that I have uh, now, Olivier, is to what degree is Tocqueville's hope, not, not his confidence, that the spirit of religion and the doctrine of self-interest properly understood succeeding in America today? Or, or, or to what degree have, have new forces, social media, polarization, and others uh, led to a decline of the moderation and self-control that, that Tocqueville thought was necessary for the spirit of the American democracy? It's a, it's a broad question, but you know, what, what, what did Tocqueville get right? And, and what can his views about uh, self-interest properly understood uh, teach us today? I'm going to answer that question, of course. Uh, uh, but I, I want to backtrack a little bit. Um, uh, one of the most interesting things, uh, one of the most puzzling things about the view is how many, how many things he got right, and you wouldn't assume he would get these things right on if you read his observations, because there is a very large uh, <laughs> uh, distance uh, separating uh, what he writes from what he knows as he's traveling. For example. His uh, conclusions on the power of religion as a force uh, in American culture and politics, provided the state doesn't interfere in religious life, as Catherine just very uh, correctly uh, summed up, is remarkable in the sense that Tocqueville missed a lot of American religion. I cannot understand, for example, how he could travel Along the Erie Canal for about six weeks in, 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 uh, July and August of 1831 and missed the Second Great Awakening. He has absolutely nothing to say about evangelical religion. Um, uh, uh, and yet, uh, even though he, and, and nobody even informed him about it, uh, and, and yet, and yet despite all of this, uh, you know, blind spot. He comes down with the right judgment and so many things. Just reading Tocqueville is, uh, is, is really amazing. And this is something about, uh, uh, when, when you f- think about the various travels that Jeremy uh, studied. Um, and, and, and yes, Tocqueville was always thinking comparatively, but he never tells you what he comp- was he's comparing what with what. So unless you have followed him in his travels, you really don't know w- whether he's talking about Ireland or England or Germany, um, of course. Um, uh, and yet uh, he, he's keeping all these different systems in mind. And often he talks about America uh, as if it were America, but he's really describing England. For example, in America, he never visits, uh, uh, he bypasses industry completely. Uh, and yet in the second volume of Democracy in America, he comes out with a major section on the course of a, a possibility of an industrial aristocracy, which will replace the, 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 the old aristocracy that has disappeared, fortunately, in America, but this will come back as a new aristocracy. He's not described, he's not predicting the Gilded Age, he's describing what he saw in England, in Manchester, and, and elsewhere in industrial England. And, 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 and all of this, all of that section comes out of his English notes, but he describes it as, as the future of America. It's really interesting the ways in which he, he he puts all of this uh, all of this to together. Now, when Tocqueville left France, he comes from an aristocratic family. The entire family has been almost the entire family, otherwise he wouldn't be uh, living. But a large part of his family was decimated by the terror by the revolutionaries during the revolutionary terror in 1793-94. Equality, the way Catherine described it, that is equality of status, no privilege at birth, equality of condition, but in a legal sense, not in an economic sense, is a bad word in Tocqueville's lexicon. It means, it means leveling. It means, it means everybody's taking down to the same level. 
one of the things that Tocqueville really discovers or realizes, which is a surprise to him when it comes to America, is that equality can actually be uplifting rather than leveling. Uh, this equality at, at birth, that is equality, again, not of economic condition, but of status, of no aristocracy, of nobody having privileges at birth, uh, legal privileges at birth. That can be uplifting. It gives everybody the possibility, not everybody, but a large part of the population, of the white population, the white male population. It gives them a possibility of achieving their promise, uh, which is something that is prevented to most from most people cannot achieve elsewhere. And that is really the greatest outlet. Now, how can people achieve their promise? Well, there are d different ways of achieving greatness in life. And I think uh, certainly if you read most 18th century philosophy, uh, you think virtue is the way to go. Well, Tocqueville realized that self-interest is becomes in much greater quantity than virtue. <laughs> <laughs> so if you if you encourage people to um, uh, look after their own interest first, you probably have uh, uh, many more people involved in this than people seeking to do the right thing for the sake of doing the right thing. That, you know, uh, interest comes in much greater supply than virtue in society. The key is to have, to merge private interest with the general interest. And Tocqueville saw the promise of this being realized more in America than elsewhere. That is, in working for your own self-interest, you have a better chance in this in, in American society than you had anywhere else in Europe at the time to promote the common interest. And, uh, and that is what Tocqueville calls self-interest properly understood, or enlightened self-interest, depending how you want to frame it. Thank you so much for that and for helping us understand how he merged the, the classical and enlightenment conception of, of virtue into that idea of self-interest properly understood. Jeremy, you uh, discuss in your book, uh, Gary Wills's critique that uh, Tocqueville didn't get America and all the things he got wrong, but on, on, on this broad question of whether his uh, concerns about uh, majority tyranny coming more from social opprobrium than from government and his cautious hope that the spirit of religion would induce people to pursue self-interest properly understood. What can Tocqueville teach us today? Just, I just, I, you know, I just want to go back one, 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 one stage just to say the point about missing evangelical Christianity in America, he missed it everywhere. I mean, it comes to England, he doesn't see it in England. I mean, it's, it goes to Germany. It, it doesn't really talk about it at all. It's, it's just quite remarkable that he misses that massive movement. It wasn't just you know in America that it existed. It existed elsewhere. Um, in terms of note, note a lot about Catholicism in Ireland and so on, but evangelical Christianity was missed and was getting getting very very, very strong politically, socially, and so on in in England. Um, that's it's very difficult. I mean that that that, that, that broader point. I mean, Olivier has just mentioned it. You know that he got lots of things. Toffel got lots of things right, and he, he got lots of things wrong. The tyranny of the majority was argument was the most probably the most controversial thing argument that that he made, and Americans immediately disliked it. And you know, Spencer's Spencer. Um, writes the you know these notes to, to the, the American edition has an introduction and notes by Spencer and he basically says well this is a very great book except that on this issue of the tyranny majority Tocqueville is wrong the people who of course didn't like America the British for example this is a bit of the argument which they took up they thought this was really spot on this told them everything everything they feared about America was there and you find it in John Stuart Mill and so on and so forth um so, you know, it, it, it's always been a very controversial part, part of the thesis. One argument was that the, 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 the very idea came, was in part an accident of, of time, that he came, you know, he came to America at the moment of Jacksonian democracy, and he missed out 
sort of Jackson for a sort of, you know, the future of American politics and so on and so forth. So in a sense, he was fooled by the immediate things that he saw. and He didn't see beyond those those immediate things. So that's always been, you know, a very, very controversial part of this, of, 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 of the most controversial part of his thesis. Um, and yet it's the bit which people remember probably most strongly, and it's the argument which time and time again has reappeared, not just in American context, but in the European context, um, and so on. If you think of, you know, the sort of Ortega y Gasset, the revolt of the masses, and all that sort of stuff, um, Michael Oakeshott, there's a very famous essay, Michael Oakeshott on mass man, and so on and so forth. And these are all developments of this sort of Tocquevillian argument about a potential tyranny um, of the of the majority, that in a sense, you know, the enlightened few would be swamped by the ignorant masses, um, and once the ignorant masses had made up their their minds, um, then uh, you know all, all debate was over. One response to that has been, of course, to say, well, that but that that majority opinion, of course, is never stable. You know, there might be a majority opinion, but it's not something which you know exists permanently. What you have, in a sense, is competition going on and minority views prevail and, and so on and so forth. And 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 so again, there's been you know that's another argument that says, well. You know, it, it's livable with, with, so to speak. One argument about America in particular um, is, of course, that one area, one area where the tyranny of the majority was was long-standing was about precisely about the position of of African Americans in, in American society. I mean, you know, he goes the thing we're talking, you know, early on he goes to Philadelphia, goes to Baltimore, and so on, and and he sort of says it doesn't, you know, he notices it doesn't matter what the law says, the law might make these people free. But opinion won't let them be free. Black people are still buried separately from white people. Black people are, can go to schools with white people, but they don't, etc., etc., etc. And so that, I mean, I, it's far from me to comment on how that uh, sub, that that subsequently developed in, in American society. But I mean, that's an example of seems to me a legitimate example of how a tyranny can be enduring and can repress a minority in in iniquitous ways, irrespective of what the law might say and i suppose it's that point that is over that is the far more difficult thing to overcome you can change a law relative well, relatively easily but changing the sort of the mores of a society which has can often have those long-term deep inbuilt prejudices is is an extremely a, a, a different extremely difficult thing and, it, and i th- and i think you know it's for you to tell me whether um, those things still exist in america i i i i don't know but I mean, it's it's uh, it's a worry. The the broader point, I suppose, now, of course, people say, well, if you if you know, it's it, the majority take is taking a different form. It's taking the form of Twitter mobs and all of those sorts of things. You know, it, it's now gone gone into the internet, and and you know, these suddenly thousands and thousands of people will descend, sort of metaphorically, upon a particular individual who has the audacity to disagree with public opinion and so on and so forth. And I don't think any of us know uh, really, frankly, how you know how, how to deal with this. It's something and it's something which does, let's be fair, it does silence people. It terrorize people are terrified now. They can lose their jobs. They can lose lots and lots of things which are precious to them. By saying the wrong thing, just the wrong word can bring this about nowadays. That is something we really have to be very, very worried about, and people are worried about it, but for the moment I don't think anyone's got a, much of a clue about how to prevent that from happening. People talk about controls of the internet and so on and so forth. Then people come back, well, what about free speech and so on? Um, it's a very worrying thing. So, you know, it he was he was onto something with this idea of the tyranny of the majority, and it but it changes its form, it changes its character and form over time. He was onto something, but it changes its form over time. Catherine Zucker, uh, Jeremy. Jennings puts on the table the question of what Tocqueville would make of Twitter mobs, which is a constructive question. And and, and what does Tocqueville tell us about how to avoid the tyranny of public opinion? We've talked about federalism as one protection, about about, uh, the spirit of religion, about about character education. What what were his uh, antidotes to the tyranny of the majority and, and how well have they worn? 
so I, I, I would pick up on some, some of the comments first that um, Oliveri Zunz made about Tocqueville's understanding of the way in which um, self-interest properly understood was um, cultivated and preserved in the United States. And a part of that was participation in local government. Um, that was the way in which people learned the art of association. And it was by participation in the deliberations about where you should build the sidewalk or the road that would teach people that, oh, there is a connection between my immediate economic and personal interests and what the government does. And by getting together with other people, we can do something about it. Um, and I think that Tokyo's relevance for us is to say, you know, there's not much of that that exists anymore. So it's a danger point. Um, you know, he was increasingly worried when looking at the United States, and I trust my colleagues to talk about other places, about the centralization of authority, which he thought would necessarily grow as it has, because individuals in modern industrial societies can do very little for themselves, very little to protect themselves from the internet, et cetera. So you have to ask the government to, to step in. Um, that's going to be inevitable. And we haven't developed the laws or ways for the government to step into the problems with the internet. But I think Tocqueville helps us understand very well the sort of phenomena that Jarmé is talking about, because his, his controversial contention about the tyranny of the majority, at least as I understand it, is that you'd think this tyranny would be exercised by taking votes in Congress, well, they disagree all the time. So it's not so much by legislation that the majority tyrannizes. And he wasn't talking about nations. He was talking about states or smaller communities. The way the majority tyrannizes is through opinion and the social isolation of anyone who disagrees. And that's why it's hard to get to legally. But I, you know, like Olivia, I, I taught uh, <laughs> total democracy in America to students for many, many time, many years. And if you ask them, oh, do you feel pressures to conform? You bet the majority of them do. Um, so, you know, the epidemic now of loneliness, um, teenage suicides going up and, um, well, Robert Putnam is famous for having adapted Tocqueville's thesis about bowling alone. The increasing sense of isolation and non-participation on the part of individuals, not just in government, but in other social groups, has a lot of terrifying political implications for American politics and I think elsewhere. And I, I, I guess, um, given an exchange, I think one of the difficulties is that when people encourage political participation as they do these days, they tend to identify political participation with protests or demonstrations. But protests and demonstrations, um, as for George Floyd, get an immediate reaction. But then how do you get those causes into legislation and policy, well, you have to work in a more systematic way. So I think protests lead to more cynicism because they don't have immediate effects. And what we should understand political participation is, should be engaging in deliberations and continuing over time rather than a one-time show. So powerful. Participation is engaging in deliberation over time. And when you lose the intermediate associations that allowed people to participate in politics on the local level, then they feel the sense of isolation and non-participation that Tocqueville feared. Olivia, I think I'll just let you pick up on this fascinating discussion and and to, to, to what degree have uh, Tocqueville's fears about the excesses of individualism and, and centralized authority been vindicated in our anxious age? Well, uh, in... In the Tocqueville text, uh, there, there is a, a very clear relationship uh, between uh, the tyranny of the majority, which, by the way, it's the, the idea came out of uh, a conversation with Jared Sparks, who was a Unitarian minister 
the first history professor at Harvard, later on be Harvard president, who just say to, to said to Tocqueville in a conversation in Cambridge, uh, well, in this country, the majority is always right. Quote, unquote. That's, it was all. It's a very small, well, here, you come here. There's one thing you need to understand. The majority is always right. So Tocqueville ran with it. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, and and built it into this idea of the tyranny of the majority, which I was explained was really the, the tyranny of majority opinion. Um, um, now, in Tocqueville's text, the, 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 uh, to ca- you encounter the danger of the tyranny of the majority through association. That is to say, through the possibility of association, associating with like-minded people who then will basically assert their autonomy, their ideas, their independence. The way Tocqueville constructed this is really significant because uh, he, he really changed the political science conversation of the day. Remember, you know, Washington feared uh, associations and Madison conceived of uh, blunting their negative effect only by multiplying them so that they would cancel each other out. Um, so Tocqueville actually changed the conversation. He said, no, no, we, you really need to, to, to use those as a force, uh, associated. And we are, uh, as we've been discussed here in, in a moment in, in, in our lives in this country where uh, we, we are struggling with finding creative forms of associations that have uh, uh, disappeared uh, 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 and um, haven't been really replaced with uh, satisfactory means of participation. Even though even though uh, uh, protest is one form of participation, um, uh, I, um, uh, uh, there are many, many other ways of participating in mass society as opposed to more localized uh, societies. Um, and so, the, the, but this is an open question. This is a struggle. This is a fight. And, and, and I think this is where why Tocqueville is, is well, relevant still as much as he is today. It's not because he has resolved issues. It's because he has posed the right questions. Uh, and, and as often is the case, uh, the question is a hell of more important than the answer, uh, which, which we are, you know, struggling with. So I, I think, you know, there is this mystery of why Tocqueville has this ability to always become relevant. It's the strength of the question. And, and here we're at the heart of it. How we, 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 uh, uh, run, how we are free from a majority tyranny, uh, how we express ourselves individually and in groups. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and I think, uh, the fact that so many of us here sense the crisis, the crisis is real. The, the crisis is real and Tokyo poses the right questions. One way of participating in intermediate associations is to do it our friends in the audience are doing, which is to listen to people of different perspectives and to deliberate with them. There's so many great questions in the chat. We won't have a opportunity to get to many of them, but but they include asking us to discuss Tocqueville's views on slavery and democracy and the excellent observation by Diana Post at the end that it's not majority of opinion, but ability to access the public square, now social media. Uh, so those who can access it have an outside influence and don't represent the majority that so squarely raises this question of, of Tocqueville and faction, which uh, Olivier put on the table. Jeremy, uh, the, the, these may be closing thoughts for, for you and uh, Catherine, but wrap up these strains as, as you think best. And, and uh, if Tocqueville poses the right question about how to avoid Twitter mobs, that question that you put on the table, uh, what are some of his answers and how can we translate them today? Gosh, 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 gosh! That's a tricky one. Um, I, I do think that, that that again that the point that that Tocqueville, you know, asks questions and the remarkable thing. I mean, this man was ill for a lot of lot of the final years of his life. But this man keeps on asking questions. He just follows things. Or wherever he goes, wherever he goes, 
he's, he's he's looking to try and understand places, um, and 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 so on. I mean, it has to be said that you know over time his interests do shift, and so the tyranny of the majority should become far less important for him, and his big question then becomes, um, which is illustrated in his second great book. You know, how is it that the French cannot um, sustain? a political culture of liberty, that becomes a big question for him. And that is part of his answer to this issue, because the answer to that the answer to that question is that the French, over a period of time, simply destroyed destroyed the middle. You know, they, they left themselves with the state and with these relatively weak individuals um, and, and so on. So, I mean, I think in terms of what his answer is, his answer is some, it is, I think, um, a sort of social capital type type response that you know that, that what you need you need that sort of middle ground where people can come together and so on and so forth and and develop the necessary social capital which enables them to, to live together I mean that's one of the most fundamental questions of all political philosophy what's the glue what's the glue which holds all of these people together and it cannot just be government that won't do. It won't. Government and law won't do the job for you. It's, there's got to be something more to it. And as we've you know, the discussions about religion and so on, once the, those sort of bonds, of, of common bonds, are, are weakened, you've got you face a really massive problem. You've got the issue of not of individualism, not not well understood. That's another part of the problem. I mean, it's it's trying to get people to it's, it's again pointed out. To, to marry the private with the public. This is a hell of a difficult issue. And again, political philosophers have talked about that for centuries and centuries. Think of Jean-Jacques Rousseau and the social contract and so on and so forth. Tocqueville's answer is, is that sort of social capital social capital argument. Interestingly enough, I mean, some of us can remember when, you know, when the Soviet Union collapsed, when the wall came down and so on. And suddenly, just right across Eastern and Central Europe in the former, former communist bloc, Hundreds, if not thousands, of people were reading Tocqueville. Why? Because they thought that Tocqueville could give them the answer to what you know what the, the way forward was. Tocqueville, and look what's happened in those societies. On the whole, the Tocquevillian um, initiative, we might say, has come to nothing. Yeah. I know most of those societies have finished up more or less where they were. They're corrupt, etc., etc., etc. So again, he's asking questions. And it's a big ask. Everything that he's asking is a big ask because ultimately he wants to marry liberty. He doesn't think a life is worth, a life without liberty is not worth living, as far as he's concerned. He says that quite explicitly. It's not worth living. How do you get that? And that is just about the most difficult question you can ask. How can you live freely in a fair society? He gives us some clues on that one, but. The evidence seems to suggest that our society isn't greatly listening to what he's got to say. Sadly. Such a powerful and, and sad reminder of uh, people after the fall of the wall reading Tocqueville and, and the, the tragedy of that aftermath and the tragedies in Tocqueville's own life, uh, which all of you write about, about his efforts to implement liberal principles in France, uh, which uh, where he largely, largely failed. Well, Catherine, the last word in this uh, sobering, but but really provocative discussion. What are some of the grounds for hope, if any, uh, in solutions to this problem of majority tyranny that Tocqueville identified? He he did talk about character education. He talked about federalism. He talked about intermediate as associations. Might any of them be productively applied today? This is a place where maybe I think Lincoln is better than Tocqueville. Because I, I, I think a religion of the law or a religion of the Constitution would be probably as, as good a direction as we could take. Um, you know, where are we going to find agreement? Well, we're not going to find it in religion. I mean, that's, that's, it's better from a religious point of view in the United States still. 63% of Americans, according to the pupil, uh, define themselves as Christian. But um, still, that's just not strong enough. And in fact, Tocqueville never thought it was strong enough. It won't resist material interests. So you have to combine them. And I guess my hope, which is about that status, is that um, an insistence on subjecting differences of opinion to conversation 
peacefully, peaceful exchanges, not cooperation, not shouting down, um, you know, the, the, in a way, the rules of civil society understood and with an emphasis on the, on the civil. Uh, and public leaders, that is one of the things that Tocqueville doesn't emphasize, but I think could be emphasized, is the potential role of the people who used to be called statesmen in articulating principles in a way that's persuasive to the public. So everybody in the United States, I think, now understands that the bitter partisanship is horrible. But you need somebody to say, well, this is how we move away from this and to get people persuaded that that would be the way to do it. Um, and there, there are institutional changes I think you could make beginning with the primaries that might foster that. Superb. Thank you so much for that inspiring and constructive suggestion that the religion of the Constitution, as, as Lincoln put it, making reverence for the Constitution and the laws, a civic religion, is the answer. Uh, friends, I, I must share with you that the Constitution Center is committed in the years leading up to America's 250th birthday in 2026 to, to playing a, a constructive role in convening the kind of conversations that Catherine talks about and that Tocqueville called for so that we can subject differences of opinion to peaceful exchanges and that citizens, as all of us are doing uh, in the audience and, and on this wonderful panel, can respectfully learn to disagree without being disagreeable, can contest our passions, and can achieve a common experience of modeling civil discourse on which the future of liberty depends. This discussion is a, is a model for these kind of conversations, and I'm just honored to have been part of this wonderful conversation. Thank you, friends in the chat, for having spent uh, an hour learning and growing together. And uh, please join me in thanking our superb scholars, Olivier Zunz, uh, Jeremy Jennings, and Catherine Zuckert for spreading so much light about the legacy of Alexis de Tocqueville. Thank you all. This conversation was streamed live on March 6, 2023. This episode was produced by John Guerra, Lana Ulrich, Bill Pollack, and me, Tanea Tauber. It was engineered by the National Constitution Center's EV team. Research was provided by our wonderful interns here at the NCC, Sophia Gardell, Emily Campbell, and Liam Kerr. For a list of resources mentioned throughout this episode, visit constitutioncenter.org slash debate. At that same page, you can check out our full lineup of exciting programs and register to join us virtually. As always, we'll publish those programs on the podcast, so stay tuned here as well, or watch the videos available in our media library at constitutioncenter.org slash media library. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center on Apple Podcasts or by following us on Spotify. And join us back here next week for a discussion on amendment reform in America and abroad. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber.